Welcome to the Boiled Owl Coffee Club Podcast, the meeting after the meeting where we talk about our experience living sober. We don't speak for Alcoholics Anonymous. This is only our experience. We have no monopoly on sobriety. If you don't like our approach, that's okay. There's lots of ways to live and lots of ways to live sober. This works for us. I'm Don. And you're an alcoholic. I sure am. <laughs> hey, y'all, I'm Sam. I'm sitting here letting go as hard as I possibly can. You know, you seem to be stuck in that, that letting go place. There's a lot of letting go to do, Sam. <laughs> Claw marks are involved, right? Yeah, it, it's let go or be dragged. That's, the, that, that's that plaque that's at the, up at the Unity Club. Yeah, so I got a joke for you. About letting go. Shall I groan now or wait till you give me the punchline? <laughs> groan at the end. <laughs> Frank is... Oh, I know Frank. He's an alcoholic. He's been in and out of AA a lot. And he's got a buddy who decides that he needs to quit drinking. Frank says, I'll take you to a meeting. So they go to a meeting and uh, lo and behold, somebody asks Frank when he walks in to read one of those tools. And he says, okay. So the meeting start. First person comes up to read the preamble and says, uh, I'm Bob. I'm an alcoholic. Thanks to God and the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I haven't found it necessary to have a drink in four years. And then he reads the preamble and and he sits down, and the next person comes up and says, I'm Charlene, I'm an alcoholic, and thanks to God and the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I haven't found it necessary to take a drink in 17 years. And she reads 12 steps. Then Frank walks up, and he says, I'm Frank, I'm an alcoholic, and thanks to God and the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I haven't found it necessary to take a drink in 27 years. And then he reads the 12 traditions. And he goes back and sits down, and his buddy leans over to him and says, Frank, what are you doing? You and I were drinking this morning. He said, yeah, but it wasn't necessary. <laughs> I think I died a little. <laughs> Don, you know, I mean, that is so, so, that's like an old timer joke. That's an old timer joke. Well, I had a hard time admitting it was necessary. Well, I had a hard true. time admitting that my drinking. I was doing it because it was fun. It wasn't necessary. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's not necessary to drink. So, well, now that we've determined that you have no sense of humor or that it has died, um, <laughs> let's like, let's liven things up a little bit, Don. Okay. <laughs> that sounds good. Maybe we need to get somebody in here to give us a lighten things up. Totally. <laughs> Introduce yourself. My name's Jean. I'm a grateful alcoholic. Hey, Jean. We're so glad you're joining us. Thank you for asking me. Thanks for coming today. Appreciate it. When did you get sober? I got sober May the 12th, 1983. It wasn't my choice. Wasn't your choice? It wasn't my choice, no, to have my last drink on that day. 
Um, was it an intervention? No, it wasn't an intervention exactly. I uh, had been uh, caught in a, pro in a uh, compromising situation, I'll put it that way. And I, I like to keep it as clean as I can. And um, my husband didn't know what to do with me, so he decided the best thing to do was to send me out to my brother in Nebraska who worked with juvenile delinquents. And I guess they figured I was no better than a juvenile delinquent. <laughs> I love it. And I remember he went. I went out there and I stayed for about 10 days. And I remember Neil took me out to dinner. And he said to me, you are really sick. And he said, I don't think you can walk through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous and make it. He said, I really think you need to go into some type of rehabilitation and I will help you find it. Mm-hmm. And so it was Mother's Day, and I called home, and I said I was ready to come home now. And my husband said, that's good, because the following Monday, I was going into a 28-day program. So it really wasn't my choice. I know I don't know that I really wanted to give up drinking. I mean, I look at it today, and absolutely, it's the best thing that ever happened to me. I mean, truly, my life is better today than it has ever been. But at the time... Um, you don't find yourself in these compromising positions no, frequently? <laughs> no, isn't that amazing? Yeah, funny no. how that works. Yes, it is funny how it works. But I drank because of necessity. I mean, my body cried for it. I can remember getting out of bed in the morning. And my husband traveled the world, so some days he was home and... Some weeks he was away, and my children were um, in college, so, you know, I was there alone. Uh, you're and, free. And I was free, and I would get out and up in the morning. I can remember it like it was yesterday, and my body screamed for it. Yeah. But my way of thinking, because, you know, we're as alcoholics, we have really great brains, and I knew if I drank scotch in the morning, then I would be an alcoholic. So therefore, I drank wine. Here there come the go. rules. Here come the rules. I to I can relate to that. <laughs> and I would get a coffee mug, and I would put ice cubes in it, and I would pour the white wine, and I would drink it until I passed out at 9 o'clock for the first time and came to. Now, why didn't you drink it out of a wine glass? Why a coffee mug? Was it, because it was, it was morning? morning. Exactly. It was morning, and I did it when my children would come home thinking I was camouflaging it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> maybe yeah. I was and maybe I wasn't. Mm -hmm. uh, fortunately or unfortunately, my children choose not to talk about that time. We, you don't mention that time. You can w talk about my sobriety and my recovery all you want, but they, they, it was, I was a drunk mother, mm -hmm. and I can never give back what I stole from them. Did no you, amends in the world. Did you feel like that it was something? I felt at times that there was something inside of me that was controlling me. Mm -hmm. and, and that's why I drank. There was one time that I got a six-pack and was going to go do a painting out in the park. And I opened up the first one. And I was like, ah! Oh. I, I drank four beers in a row, like almost one right after the other, and I couldn't, and I was like going, what is the matter with me? But it was like it had control over me. It was like a beast inside. Mm -hmm. 
took over my life. Everything depended on that drink. Mm-hmm. And when, believe me, when my husband was what we used to call in town, I was the most miserable person mm. you ever want to come across because I had to be sober all weekend yeah. and because I had to be sober when he got home at night. And it almost killed me. Really, I'm, it was such a compulsion mm-hmm. that I, until, and it wasn't probably for quite a time in recovery that I realized that. You know, we talk about... You didn't, you, when you first came in, you didn't realize that it was necessary? No, I didn't. <laughs> I, well, I was, God was good to me. Uh, that compulsion left pretty quickly. Uh-huh. And so... Uh, it, it, it went away, and I, I just didn't think about it. But for this alcoholic, early in recovery, I had all I could do was to not drink, go to meetings, get a sponsor, get a home group, and be in Alcoholics Anonymous. Because I believe Alcoholics Anonymous is not for people who want it, and it's not for people who need it. Alcoholics Anonymous is for people who do it. Mm. And as long as I do it, I'm okay. So the ramifications of my drinking and how come and why and uh, just not until I really got a clear head. Now, I went to that 28-day program. I didn't get out. I was sent immediately, directly, (laughs) door to door to a long-term drug and alcohol rehabilitation center in northwest New Jersey called Alina Lodge. And nobody in this area really knows about Alina Lodge. They do at Fellowship Hall because they do send some people up there. But that was a, they called it the place for the reluctant to recover. And that ticked me off. <laughs> I mean, you, no, you, see, you, weren't, you weren't convinced yet. I, well, I was, con- I was convinced to the point that I'd had 28 days. Let me out and, let me out and let me try this thing. Oh, okay. oh. Now, why are you not allowing me to try this? And how dare you brand me and, reluctant? Uh, reluctant. Oh, that really ticked me off. Oh. And I, oh, and it was run. I, I loved her to the day she died, but boy, the day I went up there, I hated her. And her name was Geraldine O'Delaney, and her initials spell God. <laughs> and she was about five foot five, and I have seen her bring a six foot six man to his knees. And it was tough love. And I believe in tough love. I do not believe in coddling the alcoholic. I do not believe in patting them on the back and saying, all right, honey, it's all right. Let me love you till you can love yourself. It's bullshit. I'm sorry, you know, but that's the way I feel about it. We all need some tough love in our lives. And we had, any time we wanted any, we had, there was a green pad. It was about like this. And and you had a right to write it. It was called a write it. Dear Mrs. Delaney, may I please have some shampoo? Okay. You had to learn how to do that. Ah. Uh, you had to, that was teaching us to ask. Right. Did, did because you know how I how to live in the world. <laughs> how, I didn't know how to ask. Rather than demand. I don't know about anybody else, but I know about me. Even to this day, that phone weighs about a hundred pounds, and I know that I should use it more than I do, but it just weighs a hundred pounds, and and. And that's why the girls I sponsor, I don't call them. You want me? You know where I am. Pick up the phone. Reach out. Ask for help. I always say with a new sponsee, they need to call me every day. 
And the reason to do that is because the phone weighs 100 pounds. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they're reluctant to call because it it feels like you're bothering. It feels like you're uh, being pitiful or, you know, that you're – and by doing it on a regular basis where it's routine, then it's very easy to call after a period of time. And then – when you're in some crisis and all of a sudden you really need to call, you don't have to jump over that hurdle to make the telephone call because you've been trained to call every day. Mm-hmm. There's another part to the phone call, too, though. It, it's the, the fact that a sponsee calling me can interrupt me being all full of myself. Big time. In that moment. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. That's why I love it when they do call because it does get me out of me, mm-hmm. you know, and I need to be gotten out of me. But I was there at Alina Lodge for three months. So I was really four months someplace. Mm-hmm. And then I went home. My husband had sued me for divorce. He served me with papers while I was in rehab. How, how did you feel about leaving there and going home? I was anxious to go. I was ready. After four months, I was ready. I I really was. Were you still angry at being there? No. Oh, no. After the first couple of weeks, I knew it was the best thing that God ever did for me. Truly, I knew that because I was um, belligerent and I was arrogant and I was a liar and a cheater. Your attitude changed. And my attitude changed and... um, and it's been said, because Alina Lodge is well-known throughout the country, that their success rate is about 94%. Oh. So and you get it to the point where you know you want to go back and visit, but I don't want to go back and have them take my pocketbook away again. Mm. You know, I want to go back and visit. I want to, And I did for the years that I lived there in New Jersey. I would take a meeting up, up there. I would go up and I would speak. I celebrated my anniversary every year for five years. Mm-hmm. And that I enjoyed. And I loved walking in with my pocketbook and I loved walking out with my pocketbook. <laughs> and it also was at the foothills of the Pocono Mountains with the black bears. Mm-hmm. So you didn't wander off anywhere. <laughs> I mean, they really had you there. <laughs> they, had, they had a moat filled with black bears. <laughs> yeah, really. So, you don't you have know? to stay here. But it's suggested. It's suggested, <laughs> and, exactly. And it's suggested because of the black bears. Uh-huh. And it was an, I mean, they did, for me, they did an amazing job. And I so, remember. So you had a transformation while you were there. I uh, did. And so you went home. What happened? I went home. I really wasn't welcome in my home. My husband had moved me up to the second floor of the house. He'd sued me for divorce. I had to go see an attorney right away. This was September, the well, it was toward the end of September. I don't remember the exact date. And I remember I had to go do that. I had to get that. I had to get an answer in. I mean, I'm a retired paralegal. I knew what I had to do. Did you go immediately to meetings? I went that night. I got home. I went to my first meeting, Spring Lake Sunday night. My first meeting Monday, I went to a meeting. Tuesday, I went to, I went to a meeting seven days a week for the first Probably two years that I was sober. Wow. And then I had to Does that seem excessive? No. For me, it did not because I was terrified. It's not I was in a position where I, you know, I had gone from my father's home to my husband's home. I had never lived alone. I had never, I mean, I married this man who 
his ambition was to make more money than my father, and he did, you know. And I mean, I had no, I had no money where I had a million dollar house on the ocean, two cars in the driveway. I had all the credit cards I wanted. I had never done anything by myself. I'd gotten married and had children and raised them. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't. So you had to I, learn how to live I in had a lot learn, more than just exactly, alcohol. Exactly. So was it a bed of roses? No, there were some thorns in there. But I learned because I had to learn. You know, my husband, though, God rest his soul, you know, he went, he found me an apartment. He paid the rent. He bought me whatever wasn't a duplicate in our house he bought for me. And he told me very frankly that he loved me to the depth of his soul, but he could not forgive or forget my behavior. Mm-hmm. And the sad thing about it is I really believe if he hadn't dropped dead 18 months later, we might have made it. We might have. We might have lived apart for a while. We might have gotten divorced and then whatever. I believe that. Mm-hmm. But we didn't have that opportunity. Now, the good news about that is that my children had a sober mother. Mm-hmm. They didn't have to worry about How old were they at My that children time? were on... Approximately. 20 and 22 when he died. And mm. my 22-year-old was the executrix of his estate. You know, that's... that's so I, when you first got back, they were like 18, 19? They were 19 and 20. Yeah, they were 19 but, and 20. So they were out of the house. But. And they were out of the house, but yeah. they don't forget what no. they lived through. You can't forget that. You know, you can't you can't forget that. And were you drinking alcoholically for the the duration of of their lives? So I had my first drink and my first drunk and my first blackout when I was fifteen. My last one when I was forty five. Oh, that's a long drinking career. So how do you make amends for something like that? I make living amends to my children every single solitary day. I don't spoil them. That's not for me what making amends is but for instance when my youngest daughter got married and she had her first child if they needed me to babysit I went willingly Uh, my older daughter is a career woman you know she's not married she's I hate to even think she's 56 years old right now. <laughs> I'm just not old enough to have a 56-year-old. No, you're but not. But anyway, but when <laughs> you know when she has asked me some advice about one thing or another, I have gladly given it. Mm. And I have made sure for the last 35 years that I am always available to my children any way they need me or want me. Those are my living amends. So you're there for I them. I am always there for them. Were they ready for that when you first got sober? No. Were they were they on speaking terms or what was the relationship? Oh yes, we were. Like? We were on. Well, we were cautious. Mm-hmm. Let's use that word. Yeah. I like the word cautious. Uh, they knew that their father had divorced me. They knew. I mean, this this was just a really weird situation, you know. Mm-hmm. Was it hard to? Was that first Christmas? What was it like being sober? It was amazing. It was good. It was absolutely wonderful with all the... You didn't struggle with... with no, that. I didn't. Our divorce was November the 7th of 1983, and I remember that because it was my oldest daughter's birthday. 
And I even remember my attorney asking me if I wanted to postpone it to another day. And I said, why? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, it's an inevitable thing. Why drag this out? I was through doing that. You know, I was through doing that, mm -hmm. you know, doing to not upset people or whatever. No, you know, it is what it is. We're going to go ahead and we'll do it. And I had my apartment. And I was very happy in my apartment. I was learning to live with myself, which I think is a really important part of, of all of our recovery. I mean, I know, because I'm now in my third marriage, I know that until I could live comfortably within my own skin and live with me, I wasn't capable of having a healthy relationship with anyone. And that included my children. So I worked really, really hard to be comfortable in my own skin. How did you do that when you say you worked really hard? Did you get a sponsor? I had a sponsor right away. I did spend, later on I spent... Um, did you go to, through the steps with them? No. Up uh -huh. north, we don't do that. Uh -huh. Up north, very rarely do they go, uh, does a sponsor go through the steps. And I do the same really? thing. Yes, and I do the same thing, and I'll tell you why. I do it because I want the sponsees, and my sponsor did the same to me, I want them to go through the steps in the big book as they're written. And go through the 12 and 12 as it's written. And then we'll sit down and discuss it. All the way and whatever you want to ask, I will answer. However, I don't want them to get my interpretation of the 12 steps or the 12 traditions. I want them to form their own opinion, which they can do by reading the big book and the 12 traditions and the 12 steps and then we, we sit down and we talk about it all the time. What does it mean? Well, what do you think it means? That's, but, that, but that's the way my sponsor I had it, a um, wonderful friend. I see, I still, he's still a good friend of mine who said to me, Gene, what does the black word on the white page say? <laughs> so I'm, so I'm, I'm curious, when it comes to doing a fourth step, mm -hmm. for instance, how do you work with a sponsee I to was, do that? I, how do I? I have the forms from the big book study. Okay. I print them out. I hand them to them. I tell them there's no right or wrong way to do it, and just do it, and then we'll talk about it. Interesting. Okay. So they can ask questions they about because I couldn't understand the I couldn't understand the big book. No, some of it I couldn't understand either. But by being made to read it, I formed my own opinion of what, let's say, the first step meant to me. You know, the first step, I had a really hard time, believe it or not, with unmanageability. I knew that I was powerless over alcohol. There was no doubt in my mind about being powerless over alcohol. But unmanageability? Really, you could eat off my kitchen floor. There were meals on the table every night at 7 o'clock. Nobody's telling me you know? my wife's unmanageable. <laughs> you know, the, my children were immaculately dressed and mannered. You know, and I did it as a drunk mother. So I didn't get the concept of that unmanageability. But the more I read it, the more I realized that, well, the meals were on the table, yeah, but you had to look in the refrigerator to see if there was something you'd served last night that you don't remember you served because I'm a blackout drinker, you know. 
Uh, all right, well, yeah, the laundry was done, but how many times did you leave the laundry in the washing machine and forget to put it in the dryer? And you only went to find it when you went to do a second load of laundry, <laughs> you know? And all of a sudden, that unmanageability came. I understood it. It became real. It became real. But nobody could explain that to me. I mean, really, they couldn't. I had to see it from my own experiences, how my life was unmanageable. And I did that with every step and what it meant to me. Because, unfortunately for this alcoholic, what it means to you and what it means to you may not mean the same thing to me. Mm -hmm. I can agree to disagree or agree with your concept, but for this alcoholic to live comfortably in her own skin, the gut has to stop hurting. And I have to have my own concept and live by the concepts that I come up with. Are there a lot of, or were there a lot of speaker meetings where you... Uh, I got sober on speaker meetings. I missed them desperately. So that, it, it, so one of the things for me when I got uh, first got sober was a lot of speaker meetings. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was a place where I could hear the whole story. I got to hear the mess. I got to hear what happened. And I got to hear what it's like now. Some hope, too. Never did I hear my whole story but I heard snippets of my story <laughs> right. in, in other right. people's right. Uh, experiences. Yep. Exactly. And was able to relate. Was that? At, excuse me. At all of our speaker meetings, they would, they would say, now relax, sit back, try to identify, don't compare. Yeah. At mm -hmm. every speaker meeting. As a newcomer in Alcoholics Anonymous, I needed that because I was still comparing. And I needed to identify with the people and... And the, although their drinking may not have been the same, it was the same. Right. You know, I could identify with certain things. I could identify. I could identify with. Look the, to where it's where the speaker is similar to your experience, exactly, rather right. than where exactly. it's different. And there will be similarities if you're an alcoholic. Absolutely. I had a man come up one time years ago, who came up and said, "I never thought I'd hear a woman tell my story." <laughs> Thank you, he said. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I mean, right. I could identify particularly with the woman, not particularly with the man because I'm a woman, who had become a bar drinker and who had gotten in trouble, and that's exactly what happened to me. Uh, I didn't mean for it to happen. It just happened. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, once I started, I couldn't stop. I knew every bar in northern Monmouth County and southern Monmouth County and northern Ocean County that opened at 5 in the morning, 6 in the morning, 7 in the morning. Bars open that early? Oh, yeah, New oh, Jersey. Wow. And I was there. And, you know, and I was flagged out of bars and told never to come back. You know? So if a woman, if a man is talking about that, I don't identify as well although I identify as I do with a woman who gets up behind that mic and tells the truth. Mm -hmm. you know. And I try to do that every time I'm asked to speak. I'm not proud of it. Good Lord, I'm not proud of it. But it's what happened. Mm -hmm. And if it hadn't happened, I wouldn't be in this seat right now. And those, those liabilities have become assets. Yes, they, they have. They have allowed you to be of service to other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a big deal. What's an experience when you began working the steps that was pivotal? 
I th- probably a second step, you know, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity because my drinking had, I mean, I was a 24-hour-a-day drunk. That's what I was. I mean, I just didn't draw a sober breath. I know I didn't after my father's death. I lost both my parents within 10 months. My mother died first, and 10 months later, my hero dropped dead mm-hmm. of a massive coronary 24, 36 hours after he got remarried. And I didn't draw a sober breath after that. I mean, he was my hero. He, he was my life. My mother was a daily drunk. I mean, I loved her. She was my mother, but I didn't like her behavior. And probably as I look back, because I saw later on, I saw what was in me, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and, and, I, and it made me very uncomfortable, you know, but I didn't know. I didn't draw a sober breath after my father died. And so by the time I uh, got to Alcoholics Anonymous at the age of 45, I really believed I was crazy. I mean, I truly believed I was crazy. Nobody in their right mind would do what I did. If you were in your right mind, you just wouldn't do it. You just wouldn't drink. You wouldn't go to the bars. You wouldn't take strange men home to your house and wake up the next morning and say, excuse me, who are you? You know, you wouldn't mm-hmm. find yourself in a hotel and not know where the hell you were and have to look at the telephone to see what city you were in. You know, I used to say that when I drank alcohol, I broke out in spots. Las Vegas, New York, Miami made no difference, you know? I hadn't heard that. I haven't heard that either. If somebody said, let's go, I whipped out a gold American Express card and said, why not? You know, but that's where alcohol took me. So Mm -hmm. I really did. That second step helped to save my life because it gave me hope that this craziness that I had gotten myself involved in and this nutty garbage that I had done was going to go away. And maybe yeah, I would... Once you realize that your life was unmanageable, <gasps> then oh. there's hope. And the second step, mm-hmm. restore me to sanity. sanity. You know, and I really did believe that I was crazy. I mean, there had to be something up in my head that made me crazy, that made me do those things. Because nobody in their right mind would sit in their house drinking scotch and soda and have the doorbell ring and go and hide it in the refrigerator. I mean, nobody in their right mind, you know, that's the insanity to me. That's the insanity of this disease. Yeah, Don's sitting there with a smile on his face. I'm sitting here with a smile on my face because we both totally get that. I mean, you know. And and that's what an alcoholic is. And that's what an alcoholic is. Of course, sometimes I passed out. I remember one time we had this beautiful old English sheepdog named Samantha. And I passed out on the sofa and I put my drink down here. And she was a little funny when I came to. And she <laughs> she did. She drank my Dewars and soda. You had an alcoholic dog too. I had Evidently. an alcoholic dog, an alcoholic mother, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Probably an alcoholic father, I come by it, you know. <laughs> an alcoholic aunt. Died with 50 some odd years of sobriety. Yeah, oh, well. it, it was in the family, definitely. It was. So did you have a problem developing a, a belief in a higher power? I never, um, I always had a belief in a higher power. I always did. Mm-hmm. I've always said my prayer from the time I was a little girl into adulthood. I used to do it with my children. When I got into all this trouble that 
that I got into. I used to blame alcohol, but you know, I, I don't think that's worth it either, to tell you the truth. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, knowing what I know now, I probably could have done something a lot earlier. I didn't, but we all have to go where we go, you know? Right. But what I really believed was that God had left me. And what I came to believe was that I left God. Mm-hmm. God didn't leave me. Because if God had left me, my last drunk took me to Hoboken, New Jersey. In the days when Hoboken, New Jersey was the capital of the world for your bank robbers, hitmen, kidnappers, uh, you name it, they were there. They had their own clubhouses, and you had to be a member to get into the clubhouse or know someone in there. That's where my last drunk took me. The miracle is that I wasn't raped. I wasn't kidnapped. I got out of there alive to this day. If it had not been for the God of my understanding, I, I don't know what would have happened. So I, I, I believe today that even though I left God, God didn't leave me. So I think for all of us, it takes time in recovery to come to the, those light bulb moments. You know, those wonderful light bulb moments. I love them with newcomers. And they come <laughs> in and they're, 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 you know, so loopy and whatever. And then all of a sudden you, they come and the eyes are bright. And you know that that light bulb went on. And you oh, see thank the lights God, come on, see, yes. And it's going to, you know, and I had to wait for that light bulb, that light bulb moment when I realized that God didn't leave me. And if God didn't leave me then, God's not going to leave me now. And through all my recovery, which has not been all happy, joyous, and free, God never left me. And those times, I never left God either. Mm. Mm -hmm. For me, it was looking back was where I could often see that my higher power was with me. And I couldn't see it at the time. In fact, even in sobriety, when my brother was dying, which was a long period of time, quite a few months in hospice, and and he, it was hard. And I felt that, that God had left me during that. But I was unwilling to not continue my morning prayer asking God to keep me sober because that had always kept me sober. So I did that, but I didn't believe God was... Uh, helped me with that. And looking back on it, though, after a period of time, I could see. So it's in retrospect, I could see how I had the strength to show up where when I was drinking, I did not have the strength to show up in those kinds of situations. And where I had the ability to be available to other people, whereas before I was not available. I would have run from the situation. And I was able to carry my weight and be responsible in ways that I couldn't do it before. Well, where is that coming from? It, the difference was being in AA, asking God for help, all my sponsors, my sponsees, everything in AA was supporting me through that. So God was supporting me through that. But I, I only saw it in retrospect. Exactly, exactly. You know, I remember uh, one of the really bad times in my life. Well, I guess when when you're three and a half years sober, everybody, we, we know exactly what's good for us, you know. I mean, I knew, I know, <laughs> I knew it. So I went and I married this man, and I never should have done it. Hmm. And I, I knew it was a mistake, but I 
stayed with it for well, seven years before we our divorce was final, but six years I finally had to ask him to leave. And I am here to tell you, and I tell this all the time, hopefully it helps some other people. The pain was so bad that I thought I was going to die. I really believed I was going to die. I was not going to drink. And the only thing that I knew how to do other than praying to God, because I believe in the fellowship as much as I believe in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and sometimes I believe the fellowship is more important for this alcoholic. Mm -hmm. And so I sat in a Sunday night meeting, and I remember sharing what was going on and that I could not do this by myself. So therefore, I was turning myself over to the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I needed them to carry me until I was capable of carrying myself again. And they carried me for a year. And I remember the exact meeting that I sat there and thanked them and said that now I felt I could you know, carry myself. There's a wonderful story I heard quite a few years ago now about uh, the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. When uh, Ebby went to visit Bill Wilson in his kitchen, and Bill said to him, there's something different about you. And Ebby said, I'm sober, and I'll tell you what I'm doing to stay sober. In that instant, if Bill Wilson had not trusted Ebby, I doubt that many of us would be here today. I believe in the Fellowship mm. of Alcoholics Anonymous. I really do. The program is very important. There's absolutely no doubt about it. But with some of the things that I personally have gone through, if it were not for the fellowship, I wouldn't drink, but I'd probably be out there being one of those dry drunks that nobody wants to be around. Mm. Honestly, I believe that. Jean, that's, uh, I love that you've shared that. Um, you know, I know you love the traditions, and I, I heard it put one way sometime in the past year, something to the effect of it's, it's not the steps that get us sober. The steps keep us sober. The traditions get us sober because that's what ensures that the fellowship is here to catch us exactly. when we come in. Look at how, who, who was there. I don't know about here, but when I walked into my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, we had greeters at those doors, and they stuck out their hands and said, welcome, we're glad to see you. And every meeting I went to in the beginning of my recovery, there's still to this day, 35 years later, there are people at the door who say, welcome, oh, we're so glad you're back. You know, because yeah. I've left New Jersey where I got sober, where I was introduced to service work, where I got my first sponsor, you know, where all of the, the formation of my own program took place. Mm -hmm. I miss greeters at meetings. I really miss them. Yeah, we don't have greeters here, nope. although we bring it up, at least I bring it up frequently at home group business meetings that all home group members need to be responsible to if you see somebody walk in, don't just talk to your friends. Make sure you greet everyone <laughs> because that's so important. You don't know if somebody's new. You don't know if somebody's traveling. And I've traveled and I've not been greeted. And it's been uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a simple thing to do. But I mean, not that I've brought it up to have greeters because I, I like that. <laughs> Serendipity but, does it. Yeah. Serendipity, they have greeters mm -hmm. every They, they said, every no, that we don't want to give the responsibility to certain people. It's the home group's responsibility to do it, which 
okay, I like the idea, but as long as it's happening. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's what happened to one of my, to my former home group where I was for 12 years. It became very cliquish and it was very obvious when you walked in the room. Comers were just being people, you know, just ignored. People were just talking to their little clique, and it that, made... that's what needs to be uh, short circuited mm-hmm. because it's really natural. It seems like, and it happens mm-hmm. automatically. But everybody needs to be aware of that and short circuit that. Uh, be sure to right, talk to everybody else. Because I had some, else. I've had new people come up to me and say, because I would go and say hello to them or whatever, and introduce myself, and they'd say, "Boy, I got an awful feeling when I walked in here, you know, so clickish." And you know, when I started feeling worse when I walked out of that meeting than when I walked in, then it was time for this alcohol find a new home group, mm. and I did. And I'm really happy with where I am right now. But I know that that's always an option. You know, you don't have to stay and be miserable. You can go someplace else. Go where you're fed. It's the same as having a sponsor. I mean, I for the first time in my life, I was fired by a sponsor. You know? And I was glad. Because mm-hmm. I was miserable and I didn't know how to do it. Mm-hmm. Well, it all, sponsors, all sponsors are temporary. All sponsors Mm -hmm. are temporary. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, it may be that they're a temporary sponsor, but frankly, even if it's a 30-year relationship, somebody's going to die. All sponsors are temporary. Exactly. You're right, (laughs) Sam. You know, and and again, you have to have a sponsor where you're comfortable. I went through a period, I'm I'm even embarrassed to even talk about it, where I did not have a sponsor for five years when I moved to Charleston. And I just... I don't know. I don't know whether I ignored it or I don't know. I I had my sponsor in New Jersey. I'd call her every once in a while, let her know what was going on, you know, and then my life fell apart. You know, I had to go through this divorce and I had to kick this man out and uh, who took me for everything I had and a little bit more. And uh, so I called my sponsor in New Jersey and she said to me, well, Gene, I don't you talk to your sponsor there. And I made the mistake of saying, I don't have one. And she said to her, I love her dearly to this day. She said to me, Jean, you will get a sponsor. You will call me tomorrow. You will give me her name and her phone number. I'm calling her. And you took direction well and there, I didn't took you? Direction really well, <laughs> and I got one of the best spot. All of my sponsors have been exactly what I needed when I needed them, except for the one that fired me. And yeah. there's nothing wrong with her. I just was uncomfortable. The I, relationship I, wasn't working. It wasn't but. there. She wanted me to read all the literature and go through the big book. And I'm thirty some odd years sober, and I, and I've done that, you know. And I do it when I go to my meetings and. I wanted don't to you think expand it's imp- it. Don't you think it's important that to have a local sponsor because I need I need somebody who sees me personally and t- can tell what's going on with me. Talk, long distance, you know, I can hide some stuff. That was the lesson yeah. done. That was the lesson. You know, but this incident had to happen. For this one to wake up and say, you cannot do this by calling New Jersey every time you have a problem. Mm-hmm. You are living in Charleston, South Carolina. You better find somebody here. And I did. And she was amazing. And I loved her to the day she died. I mean, she was just an absolutely amazing person and taught me so much. She used to say, I'd call her up and say, oh, and her name was Jean, too. And she, I'd say, oh, Jean, wh- 
what, what you want to hear about this, this coincidence that took place? She'd say to me, Jean, there are no coincidences. They're all God incidents. I go, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for reminding me that it's everything is a God incident. Happens a God for a reason. I haven't heard that. I like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that she was, she was amazing. And why I didn't get her sooner, I can't tell you. It's just the way it went. Mm -hmm. But since that time, I have always had a sponsor. Well, that's great. Thanks for being here. But hang on. We're gonna we've got a question for the old timer. Watch out for that owl, Gene. It tends to swoop. <laughs> it's time for our old timers question. Who are you calling an old timer? You. That's what happens if you don't drink and you don't die. I've been sober. Let's see. Since I woke up this morning. Well, compared to Gene, you're a whippersnapper anyway. <laughs> No matter how long you've been sober, it's still one day at the time. <laughs> if, if you want to ask us a question, go to boiledowlaa.org. We have a question here. This is from Franklin in Kannapolis, North Carolina. Oh, Kannapolis. Oh, Kannapolis. How does an old-timer feel about the new way of AA? Drugs, feelings, etc. Not old-school AA. I think that just depends on when you got sober as to when old school AA was. It's like in the time I've been sober, it's changed and I can go back to old school. But I've heard of people when I first got sober complaining about how AA had changed. I think it works out just the way it should work out. AA is going to be fine. We have the traditions that protect AA from itself, and any changes that happen, if they're put into effect, I think it's a God incident. <laughs> it's okay. I don't need to fight it. I, I think there's a lot of, I want to control what I know. So I've learned to do AA in a certain way, and I want it to continue to be that way because it worked for me. Mm -hmm. So I believe in it. One thing I like about travel is I get to see AA in different parts of the country, and it's different, and it can be upsetting, but the parts that are different are the parts that don't matter, and they're things that I have wanted to fight over in my own home group, and then you go elsewhere, well, they're not doing that. Well, that's not the part that's important. The parts that are important is all the parts that are the same, so... I don't know what, what's the important part. What was the question about feelings? and <laughs> How does an old-timer feel about the new way of AA? Drugs, feelings, etc. Not old-school AA. You know, drugs are... So we have a singleness of purpose, and that's important. But when I got sober, I was a big drug user. And it was a part of my story. So when I go to a speaker meeting, when I share in a speaker meeting, I can't not talk about that part of my experience. I don't dwell on it, but it is part of my experience. And that was the case when I first got sober. Maybe if you go back 20, 30 years before that, you might be able to find someone who's a pure alcoholic that never took any drugs, but it's not part of... <laughs> 
We've got one right <laughs> Jean's here. Jean's raising her hand. Her hand. <laughs> She's, uh, you never use drugs. But it's not true for most people today. So doesn't it doesn't bother me as that changes to allow people to acknowledge that they use drugs as well as alcohol. However, it is important that we have a singleness of purpose. I've been at a um, beginner's meeting once, and at the end of the meeting, a guy came up and said, you know, I'm not worried about drinking tonight. I'm worried I'm going to go use crack. That's what I want to do. Now, I never did use crack. I don't have any experience with it. Mm. And so I said, don't do that. But it carried no depth and weight because it wasn't my experience. Well, he was at the wrong meeting. I mean, I helped him as best I could, and I can give him the theory of it. But you know how it feels when you're talking to someone who's been where you are, and they can communicate in a way that just theory works. So if he had been at an NA meeting, someone could have said, I've been there. I know that feeling. I know exactly what you're going through Mm -hmm. and would have been able to help. That's why we have the singleness of purpose. So it's important, but yeah, I'm easygoing with all of these changes. I don't know what's best. I'll, I'm going to let the whole of AA make the decisions and not hold on so desperately to the little things that I think are the most important part of AA. I don't know. I don't know what it is. Gene? It's an interesting question. I was just sitting here reflecting. I remember when I was at Alina Lodge. Now, that's 35 years ago. Mm-hmm. And Mrs. Delaney used to say, please don't close the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous to people who have used drugs because someday you'll find your grandchildren have no place to go. And I always found that interesting. Does it bother me? You know, I want to hear about recovery when I go to a meeting. I know how to drink. Mm-hmm. You don't have to tell me how to do it. I'm, I'm a real expert, you know? I think sometimes people get carried away. I'm with Don. Drugs are a part of your story. That's fine. But don't dwell on it in, an alco- in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous or behind the podium mm-hmm. at AA. I am a true alcoholic. I mean, I really am. I remember once, once. I think it was right after my dad died, actually, and my husband took me to a to the doctor and to a shrink because I was really I was nutso, and he gave me Valium. I will never forget this, and the dosage, and it said don't drink. So because I followed direction, I didn't drink. Now that's the honest to God's truth, mm-hmm. but it did not do for me what Doors and Soda did to, <laughs> for me. Yeah. So I threw the Valium down the toilet. And I went back to drinking. Mm-hmm. You see, I have no identification with drugs. And I know in, with the young people particularly we have coming in, I don't want to scare them away, but I can't identify with you. I'm an Alcoholics Anonymous for my own recovery, you know, mm-hmm. and to hopefully carry the message. And feelings, oh, I drank because the dog died. I drank because the dog didn't <laughs> die. Oh, I had to put my cat to sleep today. I don't care. Did it make you feel like you wanted to drink? 
And if so, what part of your 12 steps are you going to use and the other parts of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous to take care of this problem? Yeah. Feelings come and go. They do. Mm -hmm. They Mm -hmm. do. Mm -hmm. You know, Gene, um, so we were just in a workshop yesterday uh, about singleness of purpose, Purpose. and it was a uh, a fun experience. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like maybe a little heated. It was, was. um, Mm -hmm. but it was, you know, it was a necessary conversation, I think, Mm -hmm. because both sides of this and and all the in-between of this got discussed. It got at least broached. But a new thought that has hit me was you sitting here saying you've got no experience with drugs. You can't identify with a person who does have experience with drugs. You're in an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting here 30-some years later so that you will not drink. And how selfish is it for me, if I were to come into an AA meeting with you sitting there and for me to talk about drugs, in a, particularly in a focused way. Again, if it's part of my experience, I may bring it up, but it, I'm not going to talk about the specifics. I'm going to talk about recovery. I'm going to talk about my experience of the incomprehensible demoralization that I've been through, not the specific chemical that did it. Again, I think that in a meeting in particular, we should always be focusing on the recovery. I am of the mindset that singleness of purpose is where we focus our discussion, and our discussion should be focused on alcoholism. When I'm in an AA meeting, I am an alcoholic. AA is where I came because alcohol kicked my ass. Mm -hmm. I tried a bunch. I, I, I enjoyed a bunch of drugs in my in my party days. I experimented with drugs, and the experiment was a success. <laughs> <laughs> I thoroughly enjoyed some drugs, um, and I also took some drugs that scared me, and I didn't do them again. And every drug that I tried, I was able to quit. I, I put down every drug, but alcohol, I couldn't stop. Mm-hmm. I couldn't stop drinking, and so I came to AA. And when I came to AA, I was around other people who couldn't stop drinking. Yeah. I think that the strongest thing that we've got, and this is why we have not only AA and NA, but we've got CMA, Crystal Meth Anonymous. We've got CA, Cocaine Anonymous. Mm -hmm. We've also got Behavior uh, Anonymous stuff like Gamblers Anonymous and Sex Addiction Anonymous and things like that. The identification is the most important thing because it's those people, that fellowship that we were talking about earlier, Gene, mm-hmm. is what carried me when I came into this room. And as I heard it so aptly put in a, in a speaker tape many years ago, now that I've got recovery, now that I'm in the solution, I can go to pretty much any 12-step programs, meetings, and here, strength and hope. Yeah. But I needed to come to Alcoholics Anonymous to hear my experience. And that's where I identified. Yeah, you got you. That's good. Yeah. I think it's true. It's very true. Yeah. So it's so much more than 35 years ago. I think we had AA and NA, and that was about it. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, as things have grown, the fellowships have grown. At the very beginning, they didn't think women could really get sober. or mm-hmm. And young people. Marty man. Young people couldn't get sober. They hadn't drank long enough. Well, you know, in the very beginning, there was, there was a concern. So uh, it, it talks about, I think it's in AA Comes of Age, about this man who came to them. Do we turn this man away from us or do we bring him in? The answer is, what would the father do? This was a black gay drug addict who came to the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous before it was Alcoholics Anonymous. It was still being formed, and they were like, if we let this guy in, what is he going to do to this movement that is helping alcoholics? We're afraid, is what they realized. And then what they realized, well, would, in, in their case, you know, they were going from a Christian religion, you know, what would the Father do, what would Jesus do, or whatever, would he turn this man away? No, we can't turn him away either. I don't remember that story. You, you think that's in... I think it's in AA Comes of Age AA is where it gets really uh, laid out in depth. Is that familiar? It does. It's a good story. That's if a you really haven't read story. that book, pick up the book. Yeah. Well, read it. Can I tell one more story? Yeah. This is my one more story because this, for me, sums this whole thing up. It's a wonderful story that my friend Billy told me so many years ago. Well, I heard him speak at a conference. Anyway, you know, I look at my recovery as uh, I'm in this boat with God. And I'm rowing, and God is steering. And we're going along just fine. And one day I turn around and I say to God, you know, God, I'm just really tired of rowing. I want to steer. And God says, that's fine, Gene. You steer, but you have to remember I don't row. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> thanks, Gene. <laughs> thanks, Gene. That's a great one. That's great. Well, thanks for being here today. Thank you. Thank yeah. you so much, Gene. <laughs> thanks for joining us. The Boiled Owl Podcast is posted on the 1st and 15th of every month. Visit our website at boiledowlaa.org. If you want to know more about AA, Google Alcoholics Anonymous and your city or visit aa.org. Please note, Boiled Owl AA is produced by members of AA and only expresses our experience and opinions. It is not endorsed by AA World Services. screwed up <laughs> please note sam screwed up fight me done please note in the editing all the screw-ups will not be included <laughs> don has power and it's dangerous <laughs> i'm rowing and steering <laughs> You're rowing off a cliff, and I don't even know how you're doing that.